Good morning, good morning. Hey, I've been praying for this first service. The last three times I was here, they used the second service video. Uh, and I feel like you guys got shortchanged, so I'm really praying that this is the better service of the two today. But you can take your bulletin and throw it away. Um, <laughs> I really wanted to do Mark. I really did. I, I wanted to join in with Steve and uh, take a passage out of Mark. It's there in your bulletin. But uh, the Spirit just didn't give me the freedom to do that. Uh, you can read that and meditate on it and follow it along and get something out of it on your own later. But uh, I don't have the freedom to do that this morning, so we're, we're going to do something. I, I, I read uh, or, or enjoyed reading, I should say, a gentleman by the name of Thomas Sowell. Maybe you've heard of him. He was an economist and a social commentator. And for many years, he had a, uh, a syndicated column that he wrote, and uh, very pithy and, uh, and insightful. But every once in a while, he would have a column that would just would be a collection of random thoughts. Each of the thoughts were well uh, they were cogent and, and, and they were good, but they just weren't connected to each other in the same way that his normal column would be, a 600,000 word column that have one theme and go on. So I really felt this morning uh, to, to the, the freedom to do that. I have, I've never done this before, and the only reason I'm doing it here, because you're such a wonderful group of people that if I fall flat on my face, you'll still love me anyhow. But you all come from so many different and varied backgrounds each day. Uh, perhaps the Lord will say something through these thoughts that though perhaps not building on a theme, at least are connected in some way, and perhaps the Lord will speak through them. Oftentimes, if you're honest with yourself, as I, I hope that you are and, and I try to be, uh, you go away from a message and you remember one or two pithy thoughts anyhow, right? You, you remember uh, something said specifically, so that's what we're going to try to do today. So the question you may ask is, how did you know? How, wh why did you start with Mark and then decide to change last night at 10 o'clock? Um, you know, why, why didn't the Spirit of God speak to you earlier and uh, have you do something different? I don't know. Um, I don't know why he does that, except I have some thoughts. I, I know that the Lord wants us to be attentive to his voice at all times, right? And not just to plan something and go away and come back to it thinking nothing's changed, all things are good. I think one of my favorite passages in the book of Acts, and one of those mysterious passages that are fun to, uh, to wrap around your brain, you'll never wrap your brain around it, but it'll wrap itself around you and turn you upside down and inside out, is a passage from the book of Acts when Paul is on one of his missionary journeys, uh, and he is trying to go to Asia. Remember what it says that uh, he was passing through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, and uh, he was forbidden, it says, by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Okay, can't go there. Mm, so what next? Well, the, uh, the, the rational thing to do, the logical thing to do, was then turn a little northward and try to go to Bithynia. But the scripture says after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Well, what does that mean? What, is, what does it mean? Well, first of all, I want to say this. That Christianity is a spiritual reality. That it is lived in, by, and through the Holy Spirit. Right? That's what John 14, 15, 16 is all about. I'll send you another comforter, Jesus said. 
Jesus said, I'm going to my Father, but I'm sending you a comforter. I'm returning to you. That's why it says the Spirit of Jesus would not permit them. The Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus are one and the same. And the Christian life is lived in the Spirit, by the Spirit, through the Spirit. And so I, I try to have a running conversation with the Spirit uh, as I go to work each day, as I pass by those individuals that I pass by, whether they be panhandlers or homeless people or business people, uh, whatever work that I'm going towards or doing, I'm trying to have a running conversation with the Holy Spirit. And it's rude, of course, to have a one-sided conversation, correct? Right? <laughs> it's rude to be the one that's always speaking and never hearing. But we're confident, aren't we? We're blessed, aren't we, that God is a speaking God. And I don't mean that he speaks audibly. Again, we're talking about something that's spiritual, something that's deeper than the material, deeper than the physical. I think you all just went through a series on Galatians, right? That's what that whole book is about, that the Christian faith is not about externals. It's not about what we can see. It's not about what we can taste or touch or feel or do with our hands or observe with our bodies. It's about a spiritual reality deeper than all of those things. Now, that spiritual reality affects all of that, of course, but the truth of Christianity lies in the spirit. My words, he says, are spirit, right? And life. The flesh, he says, the body profits nothing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And so, having received the Holy Spirit, and I hope you've received the Holy Spirit, have, and I'll ask that question this morning, the question that Paul asked the Ephesians in the book of Acts, have you received the Spirit since you believed? Do you know that you have received the Holy Spirit? Do you know He indwells you? Do you know He abides with you? Do you know you live in Him and He in you? Do you know the realities of John 14, 15, and 16? Because Christianity is not Christianity if it's observed only with outward observances. That's called Judaism. And Judaism was the enemy of Christianity. And in the New Testament, Paul is frequently having to address that issue. And in no uncertain terms, and with a little bit of vitriol from time to time, I would that they would go and emasculate themselves. Remember that? Maybe Steve preached that in Galatians. But Paul recognized that an external religion is the enemy of Christianity because Christianity is lived in and by the Spirit. External religion leads to pride, right? The greatest devils that walked the earth, or some of the greatest devils that walked the earth, were the Pharisees. Extremely orthodox, extremely religious, observant of the law, observant of the externals of religion, touch not, taste not, handle not, following the calendars, following the dietary restrictions, and yet what did they do when Pilate asked them who would they rather have? Released to them, Barabbas, the murderer, or Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews? And they said, Barabbas. Now don't think that I'm saying that the Jews and the Jews alone killed Jesus because Pilate certainly had the responsibility and the authority to release or to crucify him. And the Roman travesty of the sham trial and the 
awful beating and whipping that he did falls on the Romans so that all of us are guilty for the blood and the body and the crucifixion of Jesus. But I'm saying to you that external religion tends to the demonic. Remember, James says that the wisdom that comes from above is what first pure and peaceable, full of good fruits, easy to be entreated, but the wisdom that's from below is first earthly, it's of the earth, it's everything to do with externals, has everything to do with what we can feel and taste and touch and see, and then it has to do with the sensuality of that, then, then we begin to feel things in our body, if, if, if our external, if our religion is external only, it can be impacted by those things that are external. So if your faith is external, then you will ebb and flow with the external realities, the circumstances of life, your own physical being. But after it goes from physical or earthly to sensual, then what does he say it goes to? The demonic, right? The demonic. And Paul wanted to warn the church that do not get involved in the demonic. Don't get involved with demonic external religion. And I'm not here to cast stones, but that's basically ISIS, Islam, right? It's all external and it's all demonic. And that's why it's brutal. That's why it's bloody, because it's not spiritual. And so I have an onward, ongoing dialogue with the Holy Spirit. And he speaks back, and you say, John, does he speak to your external ear? No. He speaks to my heart, right? That's where he lives, in that mysterious place of us called the heart, called our own spirit. The spirit, Paul says in Romans, witnesses with our spirit, that we are children of God. There's a witness. There's a union between my spirit, that deep mysterious, invisible place of me that the Holy Spirit dwells in. And as I speak, he often speaks in return. And again, it often isn't in English or in any verbal kinds of response, but it's in spiritual truths and realities. In other words, when I speak and I give him my cares, what we spoke about last time I was here, when I give my cares to the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of Jesus, and I talk to him about my needs, and I talk to him about my discouragements, and I talk to him about my anxieties and all those things, he speaks back to me. But he doesn't speak to me always in reference to the Word of God. In other words, I may or may not hear a promise from the Word. I may or may not hear something specific to me. But almost always I hear peace. And peace is a language. Peace is a spiritual language. Just as faith, love, and hope are spiritual languages. You can communicate in love, right? You can communicate in faith. You can communicate in hope. But there's spiritual languages that need to be spiritually understood and spiritually communicated. And who does that best? And who does that only? Well, the Holy Spirit does that. And so when I had no peace last night with Mark 8, 31 through 34, which I dearly love and which I would love to preach, uh, I recognize that as the voice of the Holy Spirit. Paul would write in Philippians, let the peace of God rule in your heart. And the word rule was uh, used as an umpire, one who decided between two opinions or two opponents. And so I let the word of God or let the peace of God rule in my heart as an umpire, so to speak. And if I'm headed in this direction, as Paul was headed 
to Bithynia, and I have no peace, then I know the Spirit of God is forbidding me. There's no peace there. Now, I don't know how it specifically happened with Paul. I don't know how he heard the Spirit. I don't know uh, how he knew that the Spirit of God was forbidding them to go to Bithynia, but I just know that in my life, that as I head a direction or think about a project or uh, 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 an act of some kind, and I have no peace about it, I know the Spirit of God is communicating to me. Say, don't go that way. I'll also know that the Spirit of God will not give me peace when I've decided not to do something, right? Maybe something simple. I'm leaving the house and I'm thinking, well, I don't need that piece of equipment or I don't need that binder, that folder. And I have no peace not to take it. And so I stop, I take it, and I find later on that's the reason that I need that. And more than once, I've ignored that lack of peace, went my way only to find out, oh, I wish I would have listened to the Holy Spirit. Some of you may call that your conscience. Some of them may call that your intuition. What I'm telling you is it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks to us in spiritual language. Okay. Sort of in that realm, or in that thought process, uh, the spirit that God gives us is not a, a spirit of what? A timidity or fear. Remember what Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of three things. You know what they are, right? Power and love. And then that third one is translated differently by different translations, but it's translated discipline, sound mind, self-control. It's the word sophroneo. Two connections, sof, sof, saved, sozo, phrenea, the mind. It's a saved mind, basically. God's given us a spirit of love. Again, something that's spiritual. Let us not love in what? Word and tongue, but in what? Deed and truth. Spiritual individuals can discern what's done in the flesh it looks like love and what's done in the spirit that's truly love. And not everything that's done in the name of love is love, of course, right? Just because I say it's love doesn't mean it's love. Just because I feel something that it feels like love doesn't mean that it's love. It could be lust, right? It could be passion. It could be pathos. It could be sympathy. It could be a lot of things. It doesn't mean it's love. God alone gets to define love because it's a spiritual reality and God is spirit, right? And they that worship him must worship him how? In spirit and in truth, right? God is spirit. That's what Jesus said to the woman at the well. She said, hey, we're supposed to worship God in this mountain. Our, our elders tell us this. The Jews say you should worship God in your mountain. And Jesus said, in neither mountain do you worship God because God is spirit, Spirit. And the spirit that he gives us, the Holy Spirit, is a spirit of love, spirit of power, or power love, and then a sound mind, a disciplined mind. And I, I love that Paul often speaks in threes. It's Trinitarian. God is the Trinity, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. 
joined together in union, all working together in harmony, one God. But often what he does, does it in threes, and the realities of, of, of spiritual truths come in threes. Now abides what? Faith, hope, and love. These three, the greatest of these, of course, is love. Here the Spirit is given to us, a spirit of power, love, sound mind, right? And why might that be? And I often tell people that I speak to and people we do Bible study with is that the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. Um, references are great. Um, dictionaries are wonderful. I use them. Commentaries are great. I, I search them out. But the best, I think, interpreter of Scripture, the best way to understand Scripture is other Scripture. And so the more I read of it, the more I understand it, the more I understand disparate passages because one passage sort of speaks to another. And the passage that speaks to me uh, and helps me understand this passage in 2 Timothy, that God has not given us a spirit of, of timidity or fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind, is Romans 5. And if you know anything about Romans 5, it's talking about the death and sacrifice uh, and shedding of blood of Jesus Christ. But it says that Jesus died for us while we were still three things. He first died for us while we were weak. While we were weak. And it's not physical weakness that he's talking about. It's moral weakness. We were all born, by and large, with the moral backbone of a jellyfish, right? And we are ashamed of ourselves often, or have been in the past, and maybe even still are, when we don't do what we know is right, right? Because our backbone, our moral backbone, isn't strong enough to stand up or to face rejection or harsh treatment for doing what's right. All of us were that way. We're all weak. We're all morally weak. We may be hypocrites. That's still moral weakness because it's putting on a facade, trying to look righteous, right? It's wearing a uniform or a disguise, a mask, but still doing unrighteous things. The Pharisees were hypocrites. People who call themselves Christians can be hypocrites. Maybe you've been wounded by a hypocrite, someone that looked like a Christian and didn't act like a Christian. But all of us were morally weak. We couldn't say yes to the right things, and we couldn't say no to the wrong things, right? The good that I would want to do, Paul says what? I can't do it. The evil that I don't want to do, I do it. That's moral weakness. But Jesus said, the Scripture says that Jesus died for us, praise his name, when we were still weak. And though he puts to death the old man, he doesn't leave us with nothing. He restores it and replaces it with the new man. And the new man has a spirit of what? Power. Right? Power. He's redeemed us, Paul told Titus in Titus 2, to be zealous now for good works, to be godly, to say no to ungodliness and unrighteousness. Romans 8 is the outcome of Jesus putting our old man, the weak man, to death and then filling us with the new man, the Holy Spirit, 
who's a completely different man than the old man. The old man is weak. The new man has power. The old man cannot say no to the evil and can't say yes to the good. The new man has that power to say yes to the good and no to the evil. Do you have that spirit? Do you have that spirit that can say yes to the good and no to the evil? It's a spirit of power. But not only is it a spirit of power, it's a spirit of love. And so the second thing that Romans 5 says that we were delivered from or Jesus died for us is while we were still sinners. He died for us when we were weak. And he died for us while we were still sinners. And at its core, every sin is a violation against love, right? Because the two great commandments are what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So to sin is to break those laws. All sin is lawlessness, John says. And the law that we break at its core is the law of love. We don't love God the way we should. None of us have, none of us do today. We're all, if we're in Christ, working towards a higher obedience and a higher love. But we weren't born that way. We weren't born to love God. And we weren't born to love our neighbors. Matter of fact, in one place, Paul says, what we used to do is hate each other, and we were hated. And that's the world we live in, isn't it? We're seeing that manifest more and more in our world, but it's never been not that way. There's always been hatred and enmity between people groups and tribes and families, etc. And so the spirit that we're given is not a spirit of anything else but love. We can't love without the Holy Spirit because it's a spiritual power, it's a spiritual strength. And the Holy Spirit must be in us in order to love properly, to love specially, to love godly to love truly, not just in word and deed, and not to confuse it between any other physical or human emotion. And so Jesus died for us when we were weak, and he gives us a spirit of power. He died for us while we were sinners, and he gives us a spirit of love. And then the third thing that Romans 5 says that he died to deliver us from is our enmity against God. All of us were born enemies of God. Why? Because we all had carnal minds. We all had fleshly minds. And the, Roman, uh, the book of Romans 8 chapter says that the carnal mind is enmity against God because it can't submit to God. All of us have had that kind of mind. You were born with that mind. <laughs> I have a one-year-old granddaughter, and she's the delight of my life. But she's got a little carnal mind in her. All right? Hannah, don't do that. <laughs> Hannah, give me that, and away she goes. We're all born with it, right? We're all born with carnal minds. And it doesn't just manifest itself in saying no to mom or laughing at your parents. It manifests itself in much deeper and more sinister ways. And perhaps some of you have experienced that, right? That carnal mind, that's a mind of addiction, Maybe there are some of us who this day, like myself, are former addicts. Maybe you're an addict to alcohol or addict to sex or addict to shopping or addict to your own 
image in the mirror. But that mind that we have that attaches to addictions, that attaches to worldly things, doesn't want God. Doesn't want God intruding on my pleasure. Doesn't want God intruding on my fantasy. Doesn't want God intruding on the thing I want. Right? That carnal mind wants what it wants. It's self-ish and self-preservational and self-promotional and self-centered. And it's about me. Besides the person you look at in the mirror every morning, anybody know anybody like that? Right? All of us were born that way. But that's another thing that Jesus died for, died to deliver us from that person, that person that's selfish and self-centered. That's really what the message from Mark is all about. If you follow Jesus and if you call yourself a Jesus follower, the first thing you have to do is what? Remember, you can now read your, I told you to throw it away, but if you didn't throw it away, you can still read it, right? Deny yourself. He's not, he's not saying push away from the table from the second helping. He's not saying don't have one of those great donuts that Tom and Cindy have for us every Sunday. He's saying deny that person that is the center of the universe. It's the same word that Peter used when he denied Jesus. I don't know that person. I don't know him anymore. I don't know the old man. And so when Jesus dies to take that old man out of the way, the man whose mind was at enmity with God, the man whose mind could only think about himself, then he gives us a spirit that has a saved mind, a disciplined mind, that allows us to think about good things, a sober mind. The, the word here uh, is found also, again, sophronia, is found when Paul is writing to Titus. And the... Uh, when did I start? Anybody, can you tell me that real quick? Anybody know? Okay, I'm just, I'm just going to stop when either I think we should or the Holy Spirit says stop. So, um, the, the, the word that Titus received, he received while he was on Crete. Crete, that's where we get our word cretin or cretin. Remember? It's a, it's a great little letter. One of the pastoral letters, if you're, if you're reading this week, I, I would ask you to pay attention to that first chapter where Paul says, listen, Titus, I, I left you in Crete to put things in order, to set up, up elders in every city. And I want you to remember, Titus, that these folks that you're speaking to, their own poet said about them that they're liars, that they're lazy gluttons. And that they're evil beasts. They act like animals. These are the people that I've left you in the midst of, Titus. And so you're going to need to be sharp with them. You're going to need to be blunt with them. You're going to need to be forthright with them. Because we want them to be completely different than that. We want them to be sensible and sober and workers at home and lovers of their families, etc. And I don't know if you'll accept this, but I want to say this, and I believe this, and you can take it and do with it what you will, but we're all Cretans now, aren't we? I mean, Crete came to us. We may not have come to Crete, but Crete has certainly come to us. 
we live among the Cretans, liars, people acting like animals, lazy gluttons, people immersed in food and drink. And even though we ourselves may have escaped that, we recognize, listen, we recognize that that being all around us seeps into us from time to time, right? It, 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 it doesn't, it can't help but sometimes find its way into nooks and crannies of our life. If that's the environment we're in, if that's the soup we swim in, if that's the environment that we're part of, somehow some of that gets into us at some point in time. So I didn't come to sharply rebuke us, which is what Paul said that Titus ought to do to the Cretans, because I'm a Cretan among Cretans. But I do believe that if someone from the persecuted church was here, a Nigerian Christian, a Chinese Christian, an Iranian Christian, they could really seriously rebuke us, right? They could be sharp with us in a way that I can't be sharp with you nor you with me because we're all Cretans, basically. But they live in a world where you can live or die or die or be sent to prison or be killed or persecuted to the point of death for your faith. They have a Christianity that, I, that I'm not even conversant with, right? But I hope, I hope that if a Nigerian Christian or a Chinese Christian or an Iranian Christian who was persecuted with their faith and spent time in prison and were abused because of Jesus were speaking here to me at some point in time that, that he wouldn't have to step on all ten of my toes, just maybe one or two. And so that third thing that Jesus gives to us, the third part of the Spirit is a sound mind, basically a sober mind. Now, I was a drunk for many years, not drunk on alcohol, but drunk on my dreams, drunk on my fantasies, drunk on my visions, right? And I didn't set my mind to things above. That's what Paul says to the Colossians. If you if you've been crucified with Christ, if you've died with Christ, and you've been raised up with Him, where Christ is seated above with, with the Father, then set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. You see, a, a mind, a carnal mind, a mind that's at enmity with God is set on the things of the earth, that thinks about the things of the earth. It thinks about the material things of the world. It thinks about the politics of the world and the economies of the world and the foods of the world and the drinks of the world and the people of the world and the pleasures of the world, right? But we're told to set our mind on things above. And only a spiritual mind can do that because only a spiritual mind can live in that kind of rarefied atmosphere. You all were familiar, I'm sure, with the, the, the avoiding of tragedy out in Thailand with those young men, soccer players in the cave. Well, they could only be rescued because someone put a different kind of atmosphere around them and went through an environment that allowed them to breathe. And so when we set our thing, mind on heaven above, because it's a spiritual atmosphere, we need to be, be able to breathe and be clothed with a spiritual reality that allows us to think about those things. I keep something on my desk at work. I'm reminded about this, that it was not Joshua that needed help in the valley with the war. It was Moses on the mountain praying that needed help. Spiritual things are hard to do and impossible to do without a spiritual mind. 
Spiritual things are more difficult. That's why Jesus, or why Paul prays this way for the Ephesian church, that you be strengthened with might by his spirit that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. To hold Christ in our heart, the weightiness and the majesty of Jesus is so, so difficult without the strength we have from the Holy Spirit, which leads me to the last disparate thought, although I think they've sort of flowed together. I love the last part, the last verse of Mark 31, or 8, uh, 34. And we're going to sing a song that speaks to that in a minute. But one day, one day this story ends. One day the, the last chapter in this book closes. La, uh, one day history comes to a consummation, a finalization. And how will it come? Jesus said, there will be a day when I will return in the glory of my Father with my angels. And why with the angels? Because he tells us in frequent passages in the Gospels, the angels will do two things. One, they will gather from the living and the dead those who had been filled with his spirit, who had a spirit of love and a power and of a sound mind, who looked for his coming, who walked in righteousness, who did good. They will gather from among the living and the dead all of those people and present them to Christ as a bride. They will gather all of those living and dead, the angels will, and present them to Jesus. And they will gather then from among the rest of the living and the dead all those who are liars, fornicators, adulterers, unbelievers, murderers, liars, and they will bring them before Christ also, but not as a bride before her bridegroom, not as a body before her head, but as a person in the dock before the judge. For all of us, it is said, will come before the judgment seat of Christ, some to receive good for the good that they've done because they, by the Spirit, did good, and some to receive the penalty for their evil. And that's why Jesus comes with the angels. They will search out the depths of the sea and the lowest of the graves. They will put together all the dust that animated us at one time. And by Jesus' power, they will bring all of us before Jesus for one purpose or another. But Jesus will come back to finish this crazy, crazy world that we live in to end the foolishness, to end the pain, to end the misery, to end the wars, to end the diseases, to end the famines, to end the tragedies, to end it all. And he will come back not as a simple man this time, but he will come back clothed in the glory of God, his Father. And every eye will see him, and every tongue will confess whether they were able to do so or wanted to do so or chose to do so in this life, but they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is that your hope? Do you have that hope this morning? That one day this sorry state of affairs will end? That this wicked, cruel world that we're all part of will come to a screeching halt and come face to face with the glorious, glorious Jesus Christ who died 
while I was still weak, while I was a sinner, while I was at enmity with his father. And he allowed me to identify with him in his death and in his resurrection and his ascension. And from his place, this exalted place at the right hand of the Father, he sent back to you and to me that spirit, the spirit of power and love and a sound mind. Oh, what a glorious day it will be when we see Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. May the musicians come. Lord, for that day, oh, for that day, the day when all of this will pass away, when all of it will stop, and all attention will be fixed on you, that every engine of finance and economy will grind to a halt, when every person's passion will be abruptly redirected, and we will see Jesus, not as the plain Galilean carpenter, not as the crucified suffering servant, but as the glorified risen Christ. Lord, how much we long for that day. Maranatha, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.